You're listening to a recording of the launch of Medac's latest briefing, Health versus Wealth, UK Economic Policy and Public Health During COVID-19. The launch took place on the 16th of February 2021. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Professor Christina Pagel, Professor of Operational Research at University College London and member of Independence Age, Christine Berry, Trustee of Rethink and Economics, Fellow of the Democracy Collab and Contributing Editor of Renewal Journal, Dr Monica Sharman, an NHS junior doctor based in Yorkshire and Humber, MedAct member and co-author of the briefing, and Daniel Carter, Research Fellow in Social Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, MedAct member and also a co-author of the briefing. The recording begins at the very start of Professor Christina Pagel's talk, who is the first speaker at the event. We hope you enjoy the podcast. In terms of logistics, there's been an issue the whole time that the NHS is already incredibly understaffed, um, problems, but also just in support and the mental health impact and burden on staff has been enormous. And I don't think the government has really been thinking about how it's going to cope with that over the years to come. We already know um, from a BMA study that in the summer, about uh, one in five people had symptoms of um, PTSD. And the problem with this kind of stuff, this logistics stuff, none of it is sexy tech. None of it. It's not sexy. It's it's difficult. It's quite boring. It's challenging. There are no easy answers. But this is crucial and it underpins your ability to respond to a pandemic. Um, the exception to that is vaccine distribution. So I think we can agree that our, our vaccine distribution in the UK has gone pretty well, as pretty much as well as it could have done. Um, and we have just managed to reach 15 million people with their first dose. But that is sexy tech. Like vaccines is brand new, it's sexy. The government has been loving it, <laughs> basically, you know, and for good reason. Things that have gone wrong as well, there's been a lot of problem with data. We haven't had good data about some really crucial parameters. And although the government has been collecting and publishing a lot of information about COVID, and I'll give them credit for that because it's been very important for us to be able to understand what's been happening. There's still some things that, it, that have been big missed opportunities. And the biggest missed opportunity, not using contact tracing to understand spread or isolation of COVID, to not understand viral load, to not understand how that changes over time, to not understand the course of disease. And there hasn't even been any linking up of household data really within the test and trace system. The Royal Stats Society actually suggested quite a detailed research plan in the summer for the government to make the most out of the contact tracing it was doing that was um, basically ignored. There's also been this big problem in people understanding how COVID works and what that means for getting data and for, and for policy. So, you know, once you're infected, it takes maybe three to five days before you become infectious. And another couple of days before you get symptoms and you might not get symptoms, but if you get symptoms, it's normally a couple of days after becoming infectious. And then you have to know you've got symptoms. Then you have to get tested. Then the test result has to get reported. And then you show up in the official case numbers. So that could easily be seven to 10 days after infection. You're hospitalized 10 to 12 days after infection if you need it. So that you know, means that admission data doesn't come until two weeks after infection and death you know, three weeks onwards. So what that means is that anything you do now to change infection rates is not gonna show up in your policies and in your data for three weeks or so, two, three, four weeks. So you can't decide whether what you've done has worked for weeks. 
So anything that, that relies on phased reopening and a timescale of a week or two weeks is far too short. And equally, if you're waiting until you think deaths are bad, you've missed it. You've missed the boat, right? Because that's talking about infections three weeks earlier. And none of this, again, none of this is sexy tech. It needs engagement. It needs thought. It needs precautionary approaches, a very different set of skills. Contact tracing is the key to pandemic control. WHO recommended it from, you know, very early on said you have to test, you have to trace, you have to isolate, and you have to do it all quite quickly. Um, so the idea is that if this person is infected, you need to reach all of their contacts here and get them isolated before they can go on and affect other people. So you need to get people tested quickly within a day of symptoms. You need to then get in touch with them within a day of them testing positive, and then you need to get their contacts within a day. So get people to isolate quickly. We have never really done that successfully here. There was too much reliance on an app and centralized solutions. The, the contact tracing app in April was meant to be kind of the be all and end all. It didn't appear until October and it really hasn't been a be all and end all. There was a disregard for public health expertise there was pretty poor messaging on symptoms and the need for testing. Even now, we only have three symptoms on the website to book a test. When we know <laughs> there are more like nine or 10 symptoms and they can vary by age, children have quite different symptoms often than adults, for instance. And the need for testing, no one was encouraged to get tests if they had symptoms until quite late in the pandemic, even after, you know, months after contact tracing was set up. There's been little or no support for isolation. This has been a massive issue. If you cannot afford to stay home, you will not do it. And basically, if you don't get people to isolate, then there's absolutely no point in contact tracing. There hasn't been enough data or research being collected or used, and there's been really poor data storage and transfer. So if you remember Excelgate in, uh, in September, where they lost about 16,000 tests. And, you know, this, the app, that was a sexy tech thing. All the rest of it, not sexy. And you know they could have they could have done some technology and science. You know it could help with app design rollout and use. Can help with data collection and research design. But ultimately, unless people get tested, are willing to provide contacts, and then are supported to isolate, all of it is pointless. And that is not a technology science problem. That is a is a behavioral science and economics, a social science and a political problem. The other thing I think that has gone really wrong in this pandemic is a vulnerable population. So care homes, for one, we know that residents of care homes have borne the brunt of um, COVID have made up a very high proportion of deaths. Um, and we know that care home staff have also not been supported, that they've been at breaking point as they've been struggling with COVID. They're not getting sick pay if they need to isolate. So they're kind of forced into work. And then you also have the impact of agency staff who are often also very low income, moving between different care homes and spreading the virus that way. And the worst thing is, and not only did this happen in wave one, it also happened in wave two. We know that key workers, including not just NHS workers, but taxi drivers, security guards, retail assistants, have all been at higher risk of getting COVID. We know that black and minority ethnic populations and deprived communities have been at much higher risk of both getting COVID and then getting very sick from COVID. So we know here, this is just Public Health England data showing um, case rates by ethnicity. This other eth ethnic group is quite small, so it has quite a high peak. But you can see here is the white population 
So generally the white population are much lower risk of getting COVID than minority populations. So again, what can technology and science help with in this situation? Well, not that much, actually. This isn't a technological problem. All that could have been done is to insist that public health experts, social scientists and other experts are in the room and listen to. And I think science advisors should have advocated more, maybe they did and we don't know about it, for expertise other than their own. The government should have required it. And actually, um, you know, SAGE has a really good behavioral subgroup, which made a lot of these points over and over again, and were basically just ignored. So just to kind of summarize, you know, you can't rely on technological solutions. And I think that the government has done this consistently, that they've been trying to rely on technological solutions, whether it's the app, whether it's mass testing, moonshot, a vaccine, and they're still doing this, they're still everything on vaccines and not on all the other public health measures that they need to address and part of that is because they love that kind of thing part of it is that they love kind of big contracts with the private sector and part of it I think is ideological they don't like the kind of measures that the public health expertise would tell you that you need and a lot of that is addressing inequality so instead you know what I think you have to do is think about all aspects you have to think about the impact of poverty and deprivation on exposure and risk. The fact that certain communities are overexposed, that they already have poorer health, which puts them at higher risk of getting sick with COVID, that they're in, in high occupancy housing where they can't effectively or most generational households where they have a lot of people at risk living together. Um, and then poverty and deprivation also on the ability to practice safer behaviors. Like during lockdowns, you see actually a much bigger <laughs> separation between COVID rates between the most deprived and the least deprived areas. And that's because people like me, I can stay at home and protect myself. I don't have to go out very much. I can pretty much order everything online. The people supplying those services to me are the ones who stay at much higher risk of getting COVID and the government has not supported people to be able to practice safer behaviors. There's the hard work of just putting in place the infrastructure, the systems and the help and, and the support that your response might require. So part of that is just doing boring work. Part of that is actually an ideological thing. I think that, that there's been this reluctance to address the impacts of inequality and the potential um, remedies for that are just not part of this government's um, playbook. And I think they kind of felt if they could just throw money at it, they could find a solution. And the government has thrown money at the pandemic, but that's not, that's part of it, you need to have that funding, but, but it can never solve it on its own. Um, I think you have to embrace the uncertainty of data and the uncertainty of models. Um, you need data, you need models, but they can never tell you everything. You know, I speak as a modeler in saying that. And you need to, to take them in a sense and then make decisions based on, to me, a precautionary principle. How can we best protect people against a worst case scenario? You need behavioral science um, because you need to bring your populations with you the whole time. You need to understand how people react to things. And I think part of um, what's been quite interesting is that the early responses from the government were based on this idea that people would never do anything, that they wouldn't respond to restrictions, that they wouldn't respond to things like asking people to wear a mask. And actually people have, and people have been very supportive of restrictions when they see that it, it's, it saves lives. 
Um, and finally, just the kind of inevitable delays, which are a feature of COVID and the fact that it's quite a slow disease to become infectious, that you can spread it asymptomatically, that it takes a while before you need to go to hospital and so on. And that combined with exponential growth means that we've always been in England and in, in the UK behind the curve in our policy making. We act when it's too late. We act when everybody can see we're in a disaster. And with exponential growth, you have to act before that. You have to act before it's the popular thing to do. And I think that's very difficult for this government to do because it has kind of come into power on kind of a populist way. So we have to act before it's popular. And you have to address inequality as much as possible. And again, I think that's not, that's not the nature of the government that we've had, but I think that the governments that have tried to do that have been the ones that have um, fared best in this pandemic. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Christina. That was really brilliant. That uh, connects quite powerfully to a quote that we have in the briefing uh, and to our next speaker. Uh, the quote is from the editor of The Lancet, uh, Richard Horton, who said, the economic crisis that is advancing towards us will not be solved by a drug or a vaccine. So very much in line with the precautionary approach, the addressing inequalities approach that Christina has been talking about. Uh, which brings us nicely to our next speaker, who is Christine Berry. Um, she is a trustee of Rethinking Economics, a fellow uh, of the Democracy Collaborative and a contributing editor of Renewal Journal. Um, previously, she was the director of policy and government at the New Economics Foundation. She will be helping us understand the economic policy and the impact on livelihoods uh, that have uh, been borne out because of this pandemic. Um, Christine, uh, the digital floor is yours. Please take it away. I don't have slides, um, so I'm just going to talk um, and hopefully kind of building on, on where Christina left off really and kind of why is the government so obsessed with, with technological solutions and so unwilling to address these kind of less sexy things and I think as, as she sort of alluded to part of the reason for that is that it takes them to some quite challenging places and to some places that are uncomfortable for this government right because it means confronting the deep deep problems and the deep brokenness of our economic model and the implications of that for public health and it means doing some things that they are very uncomfortable with things like expanding the state, decentralizing power, um, redistributing power and wealth, um, empowering workers and so on. Um, so I'm really, really happy to be here tonight. I would really encourage everyone to read the, the briefing, the report, if you haven't already. I think it's fantastic. And I think it does such a good job um, of kind of dispelling this myth um, that has really kind of haunted the public discourse since the start of the pandemic, that protecting health and protecting the economy are somehow in conflict um, and it really it does a great job of laying out how actually flawed economic policy wrong-headed short-sighted economic policy has made for flawed public health policy um, and actually conversely the public health crisis will probably worsen these issues of kind of economic deprivation um, and that these two things are sort of mutually 
reinforcing. And I think increasingly people do understand that. They understand, you know, a year into the pandemic that that trade-off, that health versus wealth trade-off is a false one. You know, just the other day, the Financial Times were reporting on the kind of unprecedented biggest fall in GDP in 300 years in the UK um, and attributing the fact that our fall in GDP has been so much higher than many other countries to the fact that we've locked down far too late as a result of had to lock down for longer, that we've had higher incidents of COVID and that it's been circulating more and more prevalent in the community. So, you know, even among these kind of bastions of economic orthodoxy, I think they understand now um, this, this kind of basic fact that good health and the economy um, are actually not in conflict. Rishi Sunak, unfortunately, doesn't seem to have got that memo. <laughs> He's kind of consistently been um one of the biggest kind of cheerleaders for unlocking the economy um as quickly as possible to kind of get the economy move again eat out to help out back to the office and i think what that indicates to me is that his overwhelming priority is to try and kind of desperately try and resuscitate the economy that we had before the pandemic he has no plan beyond desperately trying to prop up um and kind of re-jumpstart economic activity that was happening before the pandemic um, but I think what's really important and what's really useful about this report is that it shows how actually that economy itself is part of the problem and is one of the reasons that we've had such a high death rate and that we've been so badly impacted by the pandemic. And I think that is something that is still less well understood in the public debate now. I mean, some of the things that we've just been talking about, you know, some of the government's failures on kind of logistics, on test and trace, on PPE, I think are now quite well understood that sort of catalogue of failings that's happened over the last year or so um, I feel like there's a there's a reasonably good public public grasp on how they failed in those ways I think what has been less debated and less well understood is the mistakes that actually stretch back decades that made us so vulnerable to this crisis in the first place you know mistakes like austerity which again incidentally the financial times has recently published a leader sort of admitting that it and everybody else was kind of wrong about austerity and that it was never a very good idea to begin with and certainly isn't a good idea now um better late than never i guess so you know the fact that austerity not only left the nhs struggling to cope left our public services struggling to cope but also you know as the report outlines had adverse effects on population health that made us more vulnerable to a crisis like this the fact that we've systematically uh, produced and designed labour markets that bake in low pay, insecurity, precarity, that mean that we've got millions of people basically living on the breadline without any savings. And we've also shredded our social safety net so they don't have access to proper sick pay, which is kind of a recipe for disaster when you get uh, a situation like this, whereas Christina said it's so important that people are able to self-isolate. Um, and, you know, a year into the pandemic, it, it maddens me that we're still having these conversations. You know, weeks ago, I was on the radio arguing about whether we should introduce a universal payment for people to self-isolate as it was, you know, an incredibly radical, potentially dangerous idea or people coming out with all kinds of nonsense about or what if people purposely go out and catch the virus because they want to collect their bounty for getting sick. And I'm like, well, you know, other countries have universal payments for self-isolating it's called sick pay it's called a welfare state we used to have one it wasn't that controversial apparently now it is um you know so all these kind of policy decisions and these things that have become normalized in this country that that are so important to understanding why we've had such a horrendous such a kind of collectively traumatic experience of covid um and also so important to understanding why it's disproportionately impacted on certain 
populations, um, right? Be it migrants, be it people of color, be it deprived neighborhoods, um, be it frontline workers. Um, and I see this in, in Manchester where I live, where we've been in and out of local lockdowns for most of the last year, um, and where these kind of spatial dimensions to um, in the inequalities of COVID are so acute as well. I think the problem is that if we don't have a kind of public debate and a collective understanding of these kind of deep structural economic causes of, of the spread of COVID and of why these inequalities exist, then we're sort of opening the door to victim blaming narratives that kind of imply that somehow these groups of people are just reckless or irresponsible or not being as careful and are actually somehow responsible for the spread of the virus that it's kind of their fault um, and I've seen that I've definitely seen that where I live um, in recent months and I think that's why reports like this are so important um, for those kind of wider factors to be understood um, and I think what's what's really maddening and really worrying is that so far the government response to the pandemic actually far from addressing those inequalities actually looks set to compound those inequalities and to compound those kind of underlying problems with the economy. Um, so I did a report with um, Laurie McFarlane and Shreya Nanda for IPPR last April um, called Who Wins and Who Pays, which was looking at the policy response to the pandemic and how it was likely to exacerbate inequalities and unfortunately nearly a year on I think almost everything that we predicted has come to pass and it's not a happy picture right that you've kind of got um, people being furloughed on less than a living wage or losing their jobs falling back on an inadequate welfare state um, who are either being pushed further into problem debt or being pushed into problem debt for the first time, people getting behind on their rent, falling into arrears, very little that's being done um, in the long run to help those people, you know, uh, a, a kind of inviolable assumption that all of that rent must need to be paid back irrespective of the impact on those people's health and their livelihoods. Um, and I think this is the real economic crisis that we're facing. You know, I got very frustrated last week when there was a whole kind of media um, circus about whether or not we were in a double dip recession and we just avoided apparently going into a double dip recession at the end of last year because there'd been an uptick in GDP. You know, the, the reality is that irrespective of how quickly GDP recovers from this crisis, we are in a deep, deep economic crisis of poverty, of deprivation, of indebtedness, of insecurity. Um, and I see nothing in anything the government is doing uh, to suggest other than that it's going to take years years if not decades to recover from right and that's true regardless of whether GDP recovers particularly if we have a kind of GDP recovery that's driven by you know revival in the housing market and kind of uh, a small subset of, of people at the top of the economy doing very well but doing nothing for these millions of people that have been pushed into hardship by what's happening um, and I really like the way the report, this was a new word to me, syndemic, <laughs> the report uses, probably not a new word to most of you, but it was a new word to me, um, you know, that this syndemic of COVID interacting with our broken economic system, that actually um, this economic crisis in turn will worsen public health and will exacerbate our vulnerability to future public health crises. Um, so I think that's really it's really helpful message and one that deserves to be heard. Um, but this is, I guess, all quite gloomy. <laughs> the report does also show that there's another way forward, right? And the, and the silver lining, I suppose, um, of the crisis for most of us is that I think it's shown people on a very kind of personal, visceral level 
in the way that all of our lives have been appended. We've learned these lessons. We can all kind of see and feel the ways in which our economy is broken and our approach to public health is broken. And we can see the truth that we're all connected. Um, so Siddhartha mentioned a quote from the report, but one of the quotes that the report uses that I really love is, um, I think it was from Martin Luther King, that we are caught in an inescapable network of neutrality. Um, and I think people kind of recognize that, you know, from a public health point of view, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. From an economic point of view, none of us are really independent. You know, we have this economic system that has been built on the illusion that we're all individuals competing with each other to you know, maximize our own needs and that we can build a system based on free choice and competition. You know, on the one hand, the reality of that is that it's entrenched power inequalities to such an extent that most people, many people have actually been left without any good choices or forced to make impossible choices between protecting their lives and protecting their livelihoods. Um, but, you know, it's also flawed because none of us really are separate from each other. And we've seen the way that we depend on the workers, we depend the most on the workers that are paid the least, you know, be it bin men or, you know, shop assistants or childcare workers. I've been so incredibly humbled in this pandemic by the people that look after my son, who's two, who's been in nursery for most of the last year. Um, and just the incredible job that they do often basically for poverty pay, putting themselves at risk every day. So I think there's a kind of, through this collective trauma, there is a collective understanding that is building of some of those things and there's an opportunity to use that to say actually no you know um we need a reset we need to reassert the principle of social security of the right to decent work of the right to a decent home you know and as Siddhartha said at the beginning that actually the whole purpose of the economy should be good health and good well-being and if we're being put in a position where we're being told collectively that we need to sacrifice our health for the sake of the economy something has gone very wrong indeed <laughs> you know that's an alarm bell um, and a red flag that there's something something rotten in the system that we need to address. Um, so, I mean, I don't have to say I don't feel super optimistic at the moment that our politicians are capable of rising to that challenge, but I'm certainly really thankful that we have people like Medact and the amazing authors of this paper that are pointing the way for us. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Christine. I think there's another uh, quote from the report that, um, that kind of reflects what you were talking about. And it's the one from Margaret Douglas and her colleagues who did a study, uh, which says it's the policy response to a recession rather than the recession itself that determines longer term population health. Um, and in saying that, our next speaker is Dr. Dr. Monica Shamran, who is a NHS doctor based in Yorkshire and Humber. Uh, and has been working tirelessly throughout the pandemic across primary and secondary care. Um, she is also taking the time to be part of MEDAC's Economic Justice and Health Group uh, and is one of the report authors. Um, she will be sharing now with us her firsthand experience uh, and some of the key recommendations um, from our briefing. Monica, go ahead. Thank you, Sid, and thank you so much to our amazing speakers who've raised some excellent points. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Monica. I'm a junior doctor based in Yorkshire and Humber, uh, where I've been working alongside some amazing tireless colleagues throughout the pandemic um, on the wards, um, in A&E and in general practice. 
I want to share some reflections from those settings and how it's been um, how it's been like for, for many of us on the NHS front line. I think reflecting the last 11 months for many of us has been surreal and I think it continues to, to be surreal still. Uh, it's been mentally quite exhausting um, and frustrating to say the least um, in, in the face of a, a poor pandemic response we've seen and, and seeing its downstream impacts on the lives of our patients uh, that were preventable and avoidable. Like we've seen huge disruptions to care where on the medical wards, for example, I've seen whole wards being moved in the middle of the night because the ward's oxygen supplies were critically low with the number of COVID-19 patients dependent on it. On the surgical wards, I've seen huge disruptions to elective and planned um, operations with patients coming in increasingly as surgical emergencies. Uh, we've seen pre-existing social problems um, which have been exacerbated by the type of lockdowns uh, that we've had. Where in a &E, I've seen a lot of people with, with alcohol dependence um, who've often been furloughed, uh, living alone, feeling as if they've got nowhere to turn to. Which leaves a lot of us feeling very helpless. You know, speaking to a colleague of mine who's a substance misuse practitioner for the last 11 years, uh, he speaks of the most brutal cuts we've had to um, our substance misuse and alcohol services. And this comes hand in hand with what public health professionals have been telling us for years about the rise of, of the deaths of despair, which is undoubtedly uh, being made worse by our protracted lockdown measures, uh, with the recent BMJ article saying that actual, actually deaths from alcohol have hit record high during 2020. Uh, we're also seeing new health problems developing where in general practice uh, I've seen almost a kind of a crisis in mental health developing uh, in particular amongst our young people uh, with various kind of presentations of, of health anxiety of, of low mood and self-harm um, and we've got the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health who've expressed grave concern about uh, the, the, uh, the developmental progress of young people particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds. I think we, where I'm based in Yorkshire and Humber, uh, we're seeing a much slower reduction in the cases of COVID-19. Uh, and like many towns and cities across the north, we're also seeing uh, yeah, quite high rates of unemployment. Um, um, for example, nearby um, in the city of Hull, where my colleagues are, uh, they were seeing the impact of the highest number of individuals in their population accessing welfare alongside uh, the highest cases of COVID per 100,000 in their population back in November. I think all of these experiences for us have illustrated very visibly and acutely what many of us as health professionals have known and learned about for a long time. And that's the extent of inequalities in health in our society. And this is not something that's new. And the poor pandemic response we've seen is threatening to entrench these inequalities even further. And which so far have had a cost, a cost to the economy and obviously the cost to health where myself and my fellow colleagues uh, in our kind of underfunded and overstretched health system have continued to pick up the pieces and where our most disadvantaged communities continue to struggle even more. Um, I'll share two further cases to give one example uh, from one of my colleagues uh, who's a 29 year old man who's a self-employed builder who came into the emergency department with two weeks of, of worsening shortness of breath uh, requiring oxygen and he was later diagnosed as COVID-19 positive. He'd been working actually prior to being admitted and despite developing these symptoms. Now kind of referring back to what Christine said there about victim blaming, you know, it's, it may be easy to, to blame individuals for these decisions but actually understanding kind of the wider conditions at play here uh, you know, he, he continued to work for fear of losing customers and income, 
Um, he, he was struggling and he had a family to support. And, and we know individuals like him were part of the three million excluded workers who have completely missed out on the chances, you know, job retention and support schemes. Another example closer to home, uh, if we just cast our, our memory back to July 2020 uh, to my home city of Leicester, um, we saw on the news the abusive working conditions faced by mostly migrant workers in the garment factories, which fast became hotspots for COVID-19. We know Leicester became the first city to experience a local targeted lockdown. Uh, there is mostly South Asian communities disproportionately affected with adverse outcomes of the virus. And these are many people within my own community who've been sort of working in these factories for, for decades. We seem to have a current economic model which fuels a cheap and disposable workforce, uh, driving underpayment of wages, illegal and insecure working conditions, all of which, of course, have a huge and detrimental impact on the health of these individuals and families during this pandemic. They're among four million workers in the UK, around one in nine of the workforce, so it's not an insignificant number, um, who are in insecure work, whose main job is on zero hours contract and self-employed workers who are paid less than the national living wage, are all at high risk of increased exposure to the virus. I'm thinking back to what Rishi Sunak said last year, which was that no one will be left behind. Now, I think we are yet to see this as a reality with millions who are being pushed further away from the opportunity to live a healthy and dignified life. And these are some of the issues that we explore in our briefing uh, about the mental health impacts of the rise of insecure work and the inequality in working conditions which have led to the increased exposure to the virus. As solutions, we've put together key policy recommendations under labour markets and income, which include to increase minimum wage and statutory sick pay to rural living wage levels, to protect incomes with short-time working schemes and ensure no furloughed or self-employed workers are paid below the real living wage and to support people to self-isolate at real living wage levels for 14 days. Um, I've also just been asked to kind of um, go into why I enjoyed, why I joined a MEDAC Economic Justice and Health Research Group and there's a quote that I, I frequently come back to, uh, which is, what good does it do to send patients back to the conditions which made them sick in the first place? And I think for many of us that are listening, uh, who are healthcare workers, we know that so many of the diseases and the illnesses that we see are so powerfully shaped by people's social and economic circumstances. Uh, and for me, that has been a, a welcome space to have these discussions, to share different points of view, and importantly, to, to make progress and take forward ideas and translate them into meaningful action. And I hope this briefing goes some way to challenging and, and changing a current policy uh, to the pandemic response. Uh, and finally, amongst all the challenges that I've described, there are some exciting signs of progress being made, but perhaps we can perhaps touch on that in the q and people are interested to know a bit more. Um, and I'd like to finish by thanking my colleagues and co-authors of the report for their tireless work and energy that went into this briefing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Monica. That was brilliant. Um, our final speaker uh, for the evening is uh, Daniel J. Carter, uh, who is a research fellow in social epidemiology uh, in the Faculty of Public Health and Policy at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, where he trained as a statistician. His research focuses on how social and structural barriers can be said to be causally impacted uh, by infectious disease outcomes. Uh, and he's also part of the Economic Justice and Health Group. 
uh, and one of the report authors. Um, he will be sharing uh, with us uh, his analysis of the interventions to protect lives and livelihoods. Um, Daniel, take it away. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sid. So I'm Daniel, and as mentioned, I'm a MEDACT member and a research fellow in statistics and social epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, although I'm going to speak from a slightly more personal standpoint here. Um, and I'm also going to go slide less and pretend I'm a podcaster. Um, so you'll notice that what I'm going to talk about really echoes the previous speakers. And I want to start by talking briefly about what it is like to be a social epidemiologist in the time of COVID. Um, as I do every year, I'm about to start lecturing on the London School Social Epidemiology course. And we ask our students at the start of each term whether they believe epidemiolo epidemiology is political. Um, and given the wide public platform that epidemiologists have suddenly found ourselves with, it's become quite clear that there are some subtle ideological divides in a field that maybe we thought was more unified by this shared commitment to bettering public health. And I think nowhere is that divide seen more clearly and by examining what sorts of interventions epidemiologists have thrown their political weight behind in the pandemic. Um, and those tend to be interventions that are limited in scope. And I think this is a missed opportunity, perhaps missed for fear of being afraid to engage with the political roots of our work. So the thesis of this very short talk is really to say that when we think about public health interventions, we actually have license to think beyond the obvious or orthodox options for policy responses. We have license to think transformatively. You've already heard that there's no monetary problem behind implementing a number of potentially life-saving social interventions, like the labor market interventions that Monica talked about. So our question then turns, as we've been talking about, how do we make this suite of interventions form part of the discourse around COVID? And I want to look at a case study of housing to think about that, um, to think about transformative interventions. So let's think first about how housing has direct impacts on COVID. We know from an epidemiological perspective that infection risk is tied to the number of contacts that an individual has and the duration of that contact. So it's an obvious statement that living in crowded housing increases transmission of COVID. And this is especially true for people who are homeless or in prison or in other institutions. We also know that people with insecure jobs are likely to have insecure housing and maybe at risk of eviction very shortly if they're unable to catch up with their rent. So the lack of an adequate social safety net for people in precarious housing means people may be forced to choose between continuing to work, to pay their rent and their risk of infection, prolonging the pandemic. And the ties to housing aren't just about COVID. The response to the pandemic means that people might be stuck in unsafe housing. And that's not just physical health from things like mold or lack of access to green space, but can also be because people's homes aren't safe from intimate partner violence um, or may experience impacts on mental health of parents and children forced to balance working from home and childcare. And we know that even outside the pandemic, poor housing is associated with general worse mental and physical health. So after the 2008 financial crisis and after the implementation of austerity policies, the mental health of the public got much worse. That's those depths of despair that people were talking about earlier. 
And we know that this economic crisis is worse. And epidemiologists understand that chronic stress can negatively impact our immune systems to result in higher infection risk and worse disease outcomes. So in this way, poor housing literally makes people sicker. So when we look at higher rates of COVID mortality in black and brown individuals in the UK, like Christina showed, we should immediately be thinking of determinants like housing and not of doing a clinical study about vitamin D. Black and brown people have been systemically pushed into overcrowded or inadequate homes. And we are seeing that consequence, the consequence of that. So given all the above epidemiological evidence suggesting this impact of poor housing, why is there no immediate policy to protect people in poor and insecure housing? There are some obvious policy interventions immediately available that we talk about in the brief. And so those immediate actions include extending the housing eviction ban, even in cases where people get behind on rent, increasing the local housing allowance, immediate actions that start lessening health inequity right away, but also address inequity from long COVID and for future pandemics. Some other expansions to the social safety net that we outline um, that will also go a long way towards supporting individuals to stay safe in lockdown might include the raising of universal credit, scrapping the benefits cap, um, calling for free school meals and broadband, and scrapping the policy of no recourse to public funds for migrants. But I perceive, and I'm a statistician, so I'm allowed to say this, that much of the epidemiological discourse remains largely around things like modeling the R number or around the number of people vaccinated today, or, or even simply just we're still at the point where we say is lockdown good or is lockdown bad. Um, but what if we chose to model, not just say vaccine rollout, but model the number of lives that might be saved by freezing rents? What if we took lockdown as a given, a necessary public health measure and asked what basic needs do people need in order to stay at home? How do we show that these aren't just social justice talking points, but evidence-based social justice talking points? And so that's why I joined MedAct and contributed to this brief. I actually think we have a great deal of evidence accumulated now on precisely what sort of public health interventions are required to make lockdown an actually sustainable public health policy. Um, and ones that help us build towards a society more robust to future pandemics, because there will be future pandemics. And myself and others want to see normalized what might be dismissed as radical policy, as not actually being that radical at all, as something firmly within the achievable aims of public health. So to put it in political terms, we want a shifting of the political, uh, of the public health Overton window. And that only happens through deciding your work is political and acting accordingly. And I too have noticed this victim blaming that Christine and Monica mentioned, that even amongst my generally very left-leaning North London bubble, we have internalized the idea that the onus is on the individual to prevent COVID. I even heard some of my colleagues criticizing people who leave their homes to use public transport or those seen socializing. And this is ideology at work. And a useful thing we can do is call this out when we see it, try to defamiliarize ourselves. Recall that we don't know if those individuals out of their homes need to work to pay their rent or have made a careful decision to meet a person when their mental health is at breaking point. So perhaps a bit of heterodoxy here, 
if we truly do believe that the inequities of the pandemic, health and social, are important, then we should also reckon with the idea that the policy responses to the pandemic themselves have further widened some pre-existing inequities. So we as the public, and those of us who are health professionals and academics especially, need to keep our focus instead on the fact that none of the policies being enacted by the government actually support these individuals who are left with the double burden of both COVID and the policy response to COVID. Envisioning and then calling for a socially just response is crucial. And social epidemiologists like myself are very familiar with doing unsexy science. Poverty alleviation by definition is not sexy work. Um, and accordingly, social epidemiologists tend to be a bit doom and gloom. So I'm gonna to try to close with a bit of optimism. Um, as someone alluded to in the chat, a couple of days ago, there was this recent Bill Gates op-ed in The Guardian where he was talking about climate change and he suggested that net zero carbon emissions is a fairy tale. And my immediate thought was that net zero certainly will be a fairy tale if Gates and people like him who wield this outsized power continue to propagate the idea that it's impossible. And I really think the same applies to COVID. If you take one thing from this panel or from this brief, it should simply be that we really can envision and call for a fairer response to the pandemic in terms of policies that strengthen our social safety net. And we need to talk about it amongst our peers and colleagues. The scientific evidence is there to support these types of social policies as public health measures. And we owe it to public health to take what influence we have as individuals or as a collective and allow ourselves to push for this more truly transformative public health. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you, Daniel. That was brilliant. Um, I'd just like to conclude on the speaking part before we go to our Q&A with a comment on the public health system in the UK, which is something that we addressed in the briefing as well. Um, as was alluded to, years of austerity in the UK have constrained the UK's capacity, UK's public health capacity. Um, this legacy has limited the speed and efficiency of the response to COVID-19, as uh, Christina was speaking uh, to at the very start of our um, meeting. The separation and lack of this coordination between the NHS and local government public health operations has obviously had a very negative impact on the UK's response. And both the NHS and local government departments have been undermined um, by outsourcing of various aspects of the test, track and trace system, um, especially to private providers, uh, private contractors. Um, this reliance on private actors that the government has pursued, um, again, very much going back to the issues that Christina was bringing up at the start, have led to underwhelming technological solutions to the public health crisis engulfing the country. Um, and the dismantling of public health England in the middle of the crisis was a continuation of this legacy. Um, going forward, uh, we recommend in the briefing from the various pieces of evidence that we've sourced and covered uh, that uh, we need to properly fund and prioritize and integrate the key pillars of public health. That's health protection, health improvement and reducing inequalities. Um, we need to address uh, inequality 
by implementing some of the fantastic recommendations made by Michael Marmont in his most recent Build Back Fair report. Um, and we also need to increase NHS funding to lift it out of crisis, of the crisis that it's in, integrating social care, increasing the salaries as well of all health and social care workers. Uh, and finally, uh, we need to ensure that public health functions and intelligence are coordinated, accountable and transparent. Um, now it's time for the Q&A section, but first I'm just going to go to Christina, who has a comment with regards to uh, what Daniel has said. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, I agree with everything Daniel was saying, and, but I think actually COVID is actually a real opportunity here. And I think we can turn the current debate to it in that there's a lot of discussion now. We just have to live with COVID. We have to live with it like we live with flu, like we live with other diseases. And I think we can go back and say, we have lived with flu. We've lived with 10 to 20,000 deaths a year. But you know what? They're disproportionately among deprived communities as well, right? We've, we've lived with nine years gap in life expectancy between the most deprived and the least deprived areas. Why don't we, why is that okay? Right, let's actually re-examine the things that we've been living with and the impact that it's had on our community. And I think this is the opportunity to say, you know, we can't go back. We're not gonna go back to normal by Christmas. We're not. So, but let, let's go back to a different type of normal and actually address the fundamental structures that have led to such a high kind of um, illness and death toll um, in the UK, because it isn't in white, richer people like me who've been staying at home the whole time. You know, I've been so protected this whole time. And I think, you know, we have to talk about it. So that's it for me. Thank you for listening. You can find a full briefing on the MEDAC website. And if you want to find out about future MEDAC events, you can sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails.